Thank you guys so much. And I just want to say good evening. And it's a pleasure to be here with you all as we worship our Lord. Um, before we say anything else, I just really want to thank you, uh, the worship team. Can we all just thank them? That was... So I've had the privilege of serving on the worship team for a long time. And everybody that was up here tonight has served so faithfully. And they are just such a blessing. And I'm just so thankful for them. Um, so I want to say thank you to the leadership team and the pastors for giving me the opportunity to preach for the very first time. It's a tremendous honor. It's a little crazy and terrifying, if I'm being honest, but it's also just amazing. So the Lord has put it on my heart to talk to you all this evening about the need for hospitable Christians and what biblical hospitality looks like. Before I say that, though, I, I do admit I have a bit of a secret agenda tonight. So if I say a joke, I need you to laugh at it way louder than you laugh at my dad's jokes. Like, way. <laughs> this, that's a good start because... I'm going to make it easy on you, though. I'm trying to not say that was a joke to get you to laugh. It's a, it's a little trick he does. So uh, for those of you who do not know, I manage the Chick-fil-A in Phillipsburg, New Jersey, which, by the way, the owner of that store was kind enough to donate a ton of food for us tonight. There is a lot of food downstairs. Yes, that's very generous of him. It might have been a lot bigger order than he thought it was going to be. So just thank you. He is awesome. Uh, so the hospitality in the middle of a pandemic has been uh, a challenge, to say the least. At Chick-fil-A, we try to go above and beyond to make the guests in our store feel welcomed. Does anybody know Chick-fil-A's wording that they always use? What's their famous phrase? Does anybody know it? My pleasure. That's awesome. Andy and Matt Millen probably said it about 5,000 times today. Um, so, but that's the truth. That's what we teach uh, our, our team in regards to hospitality. So we try to go above and beyond. We bring the food out to your table. Uh, we refresh your beverage for you when we notice it's getting low. We open the door for you when you're coming to the store. And we walk you out to your car with an umbrella when it's raining. And we do it all with a smile and in my pleasure. And all of that was made infinitely harder by the COVID-19 pandemic. No longer could we welcome guests into the store. The doors were locked, so trying to show hospitality to the guests through impersonal means like the drive-through or the curbside became the only way that we could do it, which is a lot bigger of a challenge. We had to stay six feet away and leave quickly after giving the guests their food just to make sure we weren't invading their personal space and making them feel uncomfortable. This is so new to us that we never had to do that before. I remember walking towards a guest car with a bag of food and him screaming, don't get any closer to me. Just leave the food on the ground and back away. That's what he said. I felt like I was in the movie, I Am Legend. Uh, I was infected and I was about to turn into something crazy. Um, so it gets so hard to show genuine hospitality at work sometimes, if I'm being honest. So I'll tell you a quick story. It might be gross, I'm just warning you. But this was the very first day that I ever led shift at Chick-fil-A. And I was so nervous. Like, I like to think that the team views me as somebody that's like going to be calm under pressure, but that day I was not. I was, I remember like shaking in my car before I left it. I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be crazy. And it was. So I went into the store, everything was going all right, but halfway through the shift, I hear somebody start shouting in the dining room. Somebody was freaking out, like, and I hear coughing. So I'm like, oh my gosh. I turn around, and there's an elderly woman there who's like bent over a table and a guy's doing the Heimlich maneuver on her. This is my first day, right? So I'm like, oh my goodness, I run over there. He's like seeing like, mama, like pulling back on her. It's a crazy situation. Um, so we call the ambulance, we call 911. They send somebody over and they ask me, 
can she breathe at all? Like, can she breathe at all? And I'm asking her this question, and she's like, like a little bit, right? And I'm like, okay, she can breathe a little bit. He's like, don't do the Heimlich on her. And he's this, her son's like, you know, doing it like crazy. And I'm like, you gotta stop, because it might lodge the food further down in her throat. It could be bad. So about five or 10 minutes later, she actually vomits all over the floor. Somehow, the grilled nugget is still in her throat. I don't know how it happened. All of the vomit just sort of went around it and went out, and she's still choking. So I was just freaking out. I thought that somebody was gonna die on my first shift, right? Ambulance comes, they get her on the stretcher, they pull her out, and uh, I'm cleaning up the vomit on the floor. At that exact moment, a bus of 50 people walks into the restaurant. It's like a scene from a movie. This is my first day, and the point of what I'm telling you this is all of those people that just came into the store that we wanna try to impress and show hospitality to, I was not in the space of mind to do that. I was freaking out, my hands were shaking, and we probably failed all of them because I was just in such a bad state of mind. And the point of that is that it can be really difficult to show hospitality in a crazy world, yet that is what is expected of us as believers. So before we get into the text, I think it would be a good thing to define hospitality loosely. And I read a quote about hospitality recently by a man named Joshua Jipp, and it reads, the primary impulse of hospitality is to create safe and welcoming places where a stranger can be converted into a friend. The primary impulse of hospitality is to create safe and welcoming places where a stranger can be converted into a friend. And that is our goal as Christians. We are to love others and create places for them where they can see how loved they are by God, but also how lost they are without him. One of the best passages in the Bible about hospitality is located in Luke 10, 25 to 37. I'll give you a moment to turn there with me. And it's the story of the Good Samaritan, which is one that I'm sure you've heard many times before, but within this story are multiple characteristics of the hospitable Christian. So join with me as I read. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But, des but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion." He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whenever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go, and you do likewise. Wow. This is a story of extreme hospitality. At this point, the lawyer probably should have been turning red and feeling absolutely humbled. 
This is a story of sacrifice and compassion and strength. In this passage, there are a couple of key insights as to how we are to act as believers and how we are supposed to treat people who are in need. This story pretty much serves as a guideline for what true hospitality looks like, not the fake hospitality that we see a lot of in our world. The point that I want to focus on first is this. The hospitable Christian has time for others. One of the most important aspects of the Good Samaritan is that he was not just wandering around looking for how he could be of service to people. The text tells us that he was on a journey. He already had his own tasks that he was working on, his own plan for the day, and yet when he sees that someone is in need of assistance, broken and hurting, he stops what he's doing to help. Anything that was important to him previously suddenly became a lot less important. This was a man of humility. It should be noted that stopping along the Jericho Road would have been more than just an inconvenience for this man. It would have been a huge risk. Um, as the lawyer would have known, the Jericho Road was fraught with danger. Steep and imposing cliffs, narrow roads, and plenty of rocks where bandits could hide behind were everywhere along this path. So it would have been more than just a minor inconvenience for him to hop off of his animal and to tend to his wounds. It also put him at risk of being attacked himself. Yet he stops anyways. And it's easy to cast stones at the priest or the Levite for just passing by this man who was dying and who needed help until you realize that we often do the same thing in our own lives. It sounds almost ridiculous. Like if there was a man who was dying on the side of the road, what would we do? Would we just pass around? And it's like, maybe we wouldn't, maybe we would, but it's not just a dying man lying on the side of the road. It's people who need help. How often do we just avoid them and go around them? How many times do we get so caught up in the hustle and the bustle of our lives that we put blinders on? It's so easy to get so busy that we become blind to the needs of people around us. We're running late for work, and that person we notice whose car is broken down on the side of the road will just have to fend for themselves. Maybe we say a prayer, God, I hope they have AAA. Hope that they're all right. We're, che we're checking out at the grocery store, and we notice that somebody's card keeps getting declined. She's trying to provide food for her family, and she looks very stressed out. But we have somewhere to be, and we also are running a little bit low on money ourselves, so I don't think we can help. One of the things that we've learned recently through the sermon series on Acts that has stuck with me is this statement. The best way to find out how well you love is how often you pray for people. On that same train of thought, ask yourself this. With friends and family, how often do you intentionally make time for them? One of the best ways to see whether or not you are overly selfish with your free time is how often do you use it to invest in people? Ask yourself that. As I was preparing this message, that point keep getting brought to me, and I was like, please, God, no, this is like my weakest area. I am so controlling over my free time um, and my off days. And it gets increasingly hard to be loose with your free time when you have a job that's really stressful. Because you look at that off day and you're like, okay, that's for me. That's not for anybody else. That person that's been trying to reach me, they'll just have to wait for another day because I need to relax. And relaxation isn't a bad thing, but if it causes us to miss out on opportunities, then it's bad. I'm so controlling and possessive of my free time that it's such a constant struggle. So friends, family, coworkers, and strangers, how often do you have the time for people how long has it been since you went out of your way to go visit your mother or spend time with your brother or take a coworker out to lunch that you know has been struggling recently? Or do we see our off days and just think that's my day? 
Before you know it, though, the whole day would have slipped by, and all we've done is isolate. Something that continuously happens for me at my job is that I get so busy. You've seen the lines at Chick-fil-A. You know how long they get. It's chaos, right? I get so caught up with running the operation with my immediate tasks that I can forget what the biggest responsibilities are, which is to love others, to show hospitality, and to make people feel welcome. I can't tell you how many times I'll get so stressed out by the absolute chaos of the day, and then I go out into the dining room, have a conversation with a guest, find out that they were having a stressful day, and how it was made better by our team members sharing a smile with them and treating them with respect and showing them hospitality. And then I remember what it's all about. And we miss moments to share the gospel when we're too busy for people. And we need to have time for others because God certainly has time for us. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him at every moment? Job 17, 17 through 18. God is constantly pouring into us, refining us, building us up, breaking us down, teaching us, comforting us, and disciplining us. God is the ultimate model of hospitality. And we have to realize that the story of the Good Samaritan is the story of the gospel. The Good Samaritan in this story represents no one other than Jesus Christ himself. If we don't understand that, then the story of the Good Samaritan is so much less impactful We need to understand this. At one point in our lives, we were all like the man who was lying dead. When I was lying down and broken on the side of the road, God came to me and patched me up, poured wine and oil on my wounds, and saved my life. We can't miss that. We were the dying person on the side of the road. We were not the good Samaritan. We were all lying broken and dying, destined for eternal separation from Christ. And what did he do? He stopped what he was doing. He sacrificed for us. He paid the price with his own blood. That is amazing hospitality. And we are to show uh, hospitality to others because of the amazing hospitality that the Lord has shown to us. And we are Christians, so we are to emulate Christ and become more like him. That is the goal. So we need to have time for people. Have a flexible schedule, show love to someone who needs it, even if it's inconvenient, or who it might be uncomfortable for you to interact with. The Samaritan man in this story certainly had time for others, even for a person who at that time would have been considered his enemy, which brings me to the next point, which is the hospitable Christian loves their enemies. Jesus' response to the lawyer was absolutely perfect for so many reasons. For one, Jesus was so intentional, intentional, about making a Samaritan the good neighbor in the story. In those times, to the Jewish lawyer, a Samaritan would have been the enemy. The lawyer would have looked down on the Samaritan as unclean and repulsive and undeserving of God's grace, the very opposite of a neighbor. To the lawyer, a neighbor would have been a Jew who lived his life according to Mosaic law, and that's it. All other people were lesser or unworthy, which is the exact opposite viewpoint on hospitality as the one that Jesus is about to teach him. The concept of loving your neighbor is not a New Testament exclusive ideology. In Proverbs 25, 21 through 22, it reads, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Jesus' response to the lawyer always makes me smile when I read it because it sounds like a scene from a movie 
where the arrogant student tries to stand up and stump the professor, and the professor just dismantles him in front of the entire class, and you just feel like, yeah, he got what he deserved. So instead of saying, and who's my neighbor, he probably should have said something like, I admit that this is something I fail at all the time. How do I be a better neighbor? How do I do that? But that is not what he said. He said, and who's my neighbor? I think that we might have a different definition of neighbor. But let me ask you this. Over the past two years, especially since a lot of us have been stuck inside much more than usual, usually around family, have you ever found yourself or a loved one screaming at the TV over the news? What I see all the time is a bunch of bait to make you hate your neighbor. People that you've never met and whose stories that you don't know. Sometimes, even to the effect of making us biased against entire groups of people. I hate to say it, but I've seen it happen. It's just bait and fuel for racism and hatred. And if we're being honest, it's so easy to fall headfirst into the traps they set because they set them so deceptively. The lawyer would have had a disdain for Samaritans. If modern news programs and television were around at the time, the lawyer probably would have been sitting on his couch after a long day of preaching, listening to a newscaster shout, these Samaritans are unclean. They're bringing drugs into Jerusalem, violating our women, and stealing all our jobs. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? And who's my neighbor? Don't we see it? To some degree, we can all be the lawyer in the story. We're always reading ourselves into the scriptures in the complete wrong ways. A pastor I was listening to recently said that we always read the Bible through a me-centered lens. Friends, we're not the good Samaritan in the story. That's Jesus. We're the lawyer, or we're the man who's lying half dead on the side of the road. Loving our enemies, how many people do we write off as our enemy. What if your neighbor, stay with me for a moment, what if your neighbor was the guy with the Biden flag on his front porch? What if he's the guy with the Trump 2024 sticker on his truck who wears his MAGA hat everywhere he goes? What if they got different color skin than you do? What if your neighbor is a Muslim, an illegal immigrant, in a gay relationship? Aren't we constantly drawing lines in the sand and limiting who can be our neighbors. Maybe we say things like, well, why would I go up to him anyways? It's, I know what he'd say. He wouldn't want to hear it from me. That's a lie. That is doubting the Holy Spirit's potential to save a life and to transform a heart. It is so easy to love your neighbor when your neighbor's just like yourself, when your neighbor's a Christian, when they share the same political beliefs you do. And it's important to show love to them as well, but that's easy Jesus himself addressed that in Matthew 5 when he said, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. That's the key that the lawyer did not understand. When Jesus said the phrase, do this, it really means do this forever. The word love is in the present tense here, which means continuously. The purpose of the law, which the lawyer quotes so readily, is to show us that despite our best efforts, it will be impossible for us to fulfill the law by our own strength. 
We can do okay for a while. Maybe we can have a really good day. But ultimately, we always fail. Paul summarizes this perfectly in Romans 3.10 when he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The lawyer could never have done this. He could never have achieved this level of perfection that the law demanded, which showed that he misunderstood the law completely and asked the completely wrong questions to Jesus. When I was writing the sermon, I think one of the biggest fears that I had for it was that it would just be a motivational speech for some people. And I don't want you to hear this message, maybe get a little convicted, and then re-enter the world completely unchanged. True biblical hospitality is difficult. It never succeeds if we rely just on the strength of our character or on our own goodwill. True hospitality springs forward from a heart that worships the Lord. Hospitality is worship. Worship is not just music. Worship is a lifestyle that reflects glory to God in all you do. We ultimately have two choices. Do we worship ourselves or do we worship the Lord? For what was the man in the story that was lying on the side of the road but a man who was made by the Lord? If we want to be hospitable Christians who love the Lord and love their enemies, then we need to be in prayer that God would give us opportunities to be hospitable and the strength and humility necessary to act on it. That means realizing that it is not possible for us to accomplish this on our own, but only through Jesus. This is what separates the world's definition of hospitality from that of a follower of Christ. The ultimate mission is to show Jesus to people through the example of our lives. The lawyer didn't get this concept. He had the opinion that he was doing just fine the way he was and had an arrogant understanding of the love of God and vastly underestimated his grace and his compassion for those who would submit. The Samaritan, on the other hand, had a compassionate heart, which brings us to the final point, which is the hospitable Christian is a sacrificial giver. It would have been one thing if the Samaritan had dialed 911 and said, hey, somebody is on the side of the road here in in Jericho Road, and he looks pretty bad. You should send somebody here. And just walked around him and said, oh, man, I did my part today. Hope he's all right. That's not what he did. It's not what he did at all. The text tells us, starting in verse 34, that the Samaritan man went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. That is sacrificial giving. He was not only sacrificial with his money, but also with his time and with his material possessions. Jesus very clearly says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What have we been learning from the messages preached at this church? We've taught over and over again that we need to have a loose grip on our belongings and our money. When my father demonstrated it was with his hand and being willing to open it. Because the possessions that we have, the money in our accounts ultimately belong to the Lord, they're not ours. Unless we understand that, how could we ever be generous with our money and personal belongings 
In the story of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan man poured expensive oils on the dying man, put him on his own horse, paid two days' wages to the innkeeper to take care of the man, and said he would pay more when he returns, whatever the cost. He realized that in that moment, the dying man had much more need of it than he did. And it wasn't a dilemma. It wasn't something he had to pray and fast over for a few days, saying, Lord, should I give this person this money? Should I help him? He knew it instantly. He needs this more than I do. And he opened his hand, and he gave willingly and generously. Sacrificed instantly. And that is the standard that Jesus sets for hospitality for us as believers. The biggest difference between Christ's standards of hospitality and the world's standard is the overall purpose behind the hospitable acts. You see, the world can oftentimes be focused on what it can get out of you. The reason you treat your customers with kindness is because ultimately, you're trying to get their money and their loyalty. Nobody wants to give money to a place where they feel disrespected or invisible and unvalued. So you smile at them, you wish them a good day, and it could be genuine a lot of the times. But the overall mission is to get something from them. It's business, and oftentimes that's where it ends. The point of hospitality that we show others as Christians is not to get anything out of them, but to get them to see what they can receive through Jesus Christ, amen? The meals we provide, the clothes we buy for people, the time we spend helping people with their problems is all ultimately to show them the character of Christ through our example. That's the mission. It's not to get something out of them, it's to give them the knowledge of Jesus Christ through our own example. Remember this, people are much more receptive to a conversation about their spiritual needs when a physical need is met. So instead of going up to someone who looks homeless on the side of the road, this is an example, and saying, well, Jesus loves you, buy them a meal, buy them a cup of coffee, anything, then share the gospel with them and watch what happens. A saying that I go by a lot at work is, people don't know, don't care what you know until they know that you care. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. Show people that you care about them and they'll be so much more receptive to the gospel message you want to share with them. The Good Samaritan represented the hospitality and the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, the master of the universe who died for me, who died for you, who washed the feet of his disciples. Think about this, the, the God of the universe in human flesh, washing the dirt off of someone's feet. I don't know about you guys, but that thought just makes me sick. And it makes me so amazed at the heart of Christ that he would ever wash my feet that he would ever sacrifice his life for me. That's the Jesus that I worship. That's who I want to be like. That's the kind of sacrificial love that I want to be remembered for when I'm gone. And that's only possible through a heart of worship as the Holy Spirit fills us and strengthens us and points us to the cross where Jesus sacrificed himself so that through him, all have the potential for eternal life. One of the most um, amazing parts of coming back to Chick-fil-A was the fact that I got to start a Bible study for a lot of the young men on Sunday nights. That's been going on for a while now. Started off on Zoom back when it was taboo to meet in person still. And it, to the glory of God, it's still going strong this day. And there's one young man there that last year had a very tough year. He lost both of his grandparents in one year. And we were really there for him. We, we prayed for him. We tried to support him as best we could. But something that really stuck out to me was a story that he shared um, about one of his grandfather's funerals. 
And while he was there, I believe it was his cousin, it was somebody in his family that wrote a song for their grandfather. And it, this song just brought me to tears because, I mean, she could barely sing it. She was so emotional. But the name of the song was I Saw Jesus in You. And through her teary eyes and her cracking voice, what she said of her grandfather was, I just want you to know that I saw Jesus in you. Praise God. That is the most amazing thing you could ever hear at the end of your life. And that's what we should want people to say about us. We shouldn't want them to say, you know, Matthew Ackley, he was a great guy. He made people laugh. I want them to say, you know what? He loved Jesus. He loved Jesus with all of his heart. So where do we go from here? How do we take this message and apply it? If your answer is, well, I'll go out and be nice to people, buy them a cup of coffee, then I think that you've missed the point of the message. We need to go from here and worship. We need to ask the Lord to shape us to be more hospitable. Ask the Lord to tear down the walls in our hearts that limit our potential for hospitality. We need to ask God to prune our hearts to remove the insidious pride that might dwell in there. And we need to be able to let go of the tight grip that we have on our own possessions, our own money, and our own time. Join with me in prayer. Father, you are so good. God, I just want to thank you right now for the gift of Jesus. God, for the amazing hospitality that he showed us, Lord, through his death on the cross. Lord, something that we could never, ever deserve. Lord, I thank you that we worship a God who loves us, Lord, who is compassionate and kind enough to get down on his knees and wash people's feet. Lord, I thank you for the standard that he set for hospitality. Lord, I pray that we would all aspire to be more like Jesus, that we would leave this place on fire to share the good news of Jesus Christ with anyone that we meet, God. Lord, let our lives become more like him in all that we do. Lord, we thank you for the gifts of worship. Lord, we pray that we would have hearts of worship. Lord, that it would not just become something that we do on Sundays, Lord, but it would be something that we dwell on constantly, Lord, which is the overwhelming joy that we can find through Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for all you are doing, all that you will do. Lord, we have confidence that you are working in our church. Lord, we have confidence that you are working in our lives and in our families' lives and that you will accomplish what you have set out to do, Lord. And we believe that you have accomplished it, Lord, that it is finished. Lord, we love you, and it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.